Is the true nature of superpowered beings revealed here, live, at last? Do they fail the test when confronted by a menace of genuinely mind-staggering proportions? Are they super only when they swagger among ordinary men? This fight could be the answer! Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold, episode 12 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, we are actually getting really near the end. I know. I feel I feel so sad. <laughs> oh, but you know what? We are going to have this astonishing, complete work to our name, just like Walter Simonson did with his run of Thor, except we're, you know, a, a kind of silly podcast, and he's one of the most enduring runs in all of comics. <laughs> That's true. Although, wouldn't it be super weird and super meta if, like, 30 years from now, somebody was doing a podcast about our podcast? Oh, man, they could do, like, a where are they now thing. It'll track us down. <laughs> that would be pretty rad. Where 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 do you see yourself in 30 years? Myself in 30 years? I mean, I would personally love to explore the dwarven realm of Nidavellir, although given what happened to it in the last couple issues of Thor and Jason Aaron's current run, maybe I should wait a while for some of the fires to die down before I go there. See, I see myself as a, you know, a New England school teacher writing mysteries and solving murders. That's how I want my old age to go. Oh, oh so what'll happen is <laughs> there will be like some Asgardian themed murders and you and I will get called in as experts on, on the case because we've done all this research into the mythology about the mythology about mythology. Oh my God. It'd be like a murder. She wrote X-Files Thor crossover. Everything you just said is amazing, Elizabeth. Yes. Well, I'll see you in 30 years. Okay. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> and also, you know, in a week to record the last episode. Uh, why'd you have to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in the content that we'll be talking about today, we, you definitely get the feel that things are approaching sort of a climax and a conclusion. Like as much as the Buscema era of Simonson's run of Thor is in some ways lesser, it's certainly uh, smaller in scale. At the same time, there's some epic stuff going on, and all of it is starting to build to a head, and this episode is going to be about all of that. Yeah, well, I'm sad to see Walter Simonson's run ending. I do like that you can tell that he's putting a lot of care into wrapping it up. This kind of reminds me of when Alan Davis came back to Excalibur after having been gone for, for several years. Oh, yeah. And it was like he had a checklist, like, I need to resolve this, 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 and this. And you're like... Thank you, Ellen Davis. Like, I know you can't be with me forever, but thank you for taking care of your readers while you're here. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like uh, the Wachowski series, Sense8. You know, it got canceled after season two, but they're doing a movie to wrap it up. Yes. And like what they said they were going to do with Deadwood jerks. Did, did they never finish up Deadwood? Really? They didn't. And all these years later, I actually recently heard a rumor that they are going to start that up again. But but yeah, Deadwood, for those of you who missed out, boy, at least 10 years ago, it's an HBO series. There's a lot of swearing. There was a lot of swearing It was a, you know, a Western with like pigs that ate humans, but it was totally amazing. And then it was abruptly canceled after the third season. And they said, don't worry, we're going to do like three movies. And then they never did. Oh, man, for me, it was the 90s sci-fi series Earth 2 and VR 5. Oh. They each got one season, and then they were canceled. And I don't know if it was just petty vengeance or what, but in the last episode of each one, they had this, like, horrible cliffhanger with something terrible happening to the main character, and the series is just over. You never find out. 
So many showrunners, like I've heard interviews where they said, well, we weren't sure if we were getting another season, so we thought we'd do like a really epic cliffhanger and hopefully they'd bring us back. And more often than not, I feel like that blows up in people's faces. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad that Walter Simonson did get a chance to finish his story. And then Tom DeFalco took over and Thor was just sort of okay for a long time. Yep, yep, yep. It's okay. Jason Aaron would eventually show up. Before him, it would be Straczynski. Before him, it would be Oming. There are lots of good Thor writers who are not Walter Simonson. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to exploring those worlds in my future downtime. <laughs> downtime? I've, I've heard of downtime. I know. Although knowing me, something else will pop up and I'll be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's both of our curse. We are very good at saying yes and very bad at saying no. And so we have no time. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, one thing we said yes to was talking about Thor, so let's go ahead and do that. This week we will be covering issues 375 to 378 of The Mighty Thor, and we are starting with Shadows of the Past. And the way this opens is lots of fun. So a lot of the time in X-Men, you'll have a danger room open. You'll have the team training in the danger room, and you get a brief summary of who's who and what their powers are. And I feel like one of my favorite openings in Thor is the moping Loki open. The Moki, Mopey... There's a portmanteau in there somewhere, but I don't know where it is. (laughs) Emo Loki? Emoki? Emoki. That just rolls off the tongue. All right, let's go with it. So we have an Emoki opening here. And he is sitting on his throne and he's lost in thought. And you can see he's slowly spilling his goblet, you know, kind of down on the floor near his throne. And you can't tell if he's just so lost in thought that he doesn't realize he's spilling or if he's being petty and kind of crappy to whoever his house cleaner is. I think uh, my take is he's pouring one out, possibly for the good day he might have had were it not for his meddling brother, or possibly because he's just very sad about the coronation, about not getting to be king. Yes, he. yeah, he's definitely fuming, and he says, Thwarted again! Shall this kingdom never be mine? I, who saved it from destruction at the hands of Surtur. I, in whose veins runs the blood of the kings of frost giants. I, who am the adopted son of Odin himself, even the patience of Loki is not without limit. I love how gloriously petty and vindictive Loki is for, like, the rest of Simonson's run. That's some of my favorite Loki when he's just a total selfish dick. He's just super pissy. And first I have to say, who ever thought the the patience of Loki was without limit? Like, who would ever accuse him of being a patient God. <laughs> I, I certainly would not. I mean, uh, he wears green very well. I'll give him that. He's good at being a jerk with magic and being a jerk with words. I'll give him that. But patience, maybe not so much. Yeah. I, I'm mostly what Loki is known for in this run is being a schemer whose plans typically blow up in his face. So I guess we'll have to see if this theme continues. But he is blaming Thor for interfering with his plans. And in an aside, mentions how glad he is that Lorelai is gone. Yeah, he talks about how her statuesque beauty would better suit the garden than it did him. And given that we don't get any further explanation, and given that she's just gone for the rest of Simonson's run, it sounded like when we were talking before that we both got the same impression of what her fate had been, right? Yeah, that perhaps he turned her into stone and put her outside in his garden? Yeah, statuesque. (laughs) I mean, that's the sort of, like, evil wordplay Loki would use about something he did to uh, an opponent. And I could see him, like, transforming her and being like, now you'll be beautiful forever in stone. 
alone. <laughs> uh, now, weirdly enough, I looked into what happened to Lorelai because I knew she came back later. Like, there's this whole thing with her and getting killed by the god Seth later on and trying to bargain with her sister about who's going to be in hell and stuff like that. And the issue right after Simonson's run finishes, so that's Thor 383, I believe, uh, the framing story for this flashback that we see is actually Lorelai and Amora talking. Like, nothing ever really happened to Lorelai. So I guess they just didn't worry about it? Yeah, I mean, I guess Lorelai is a sorceress and she can be resourceful. Maybe, like, turning her into stone, like, broke her love of Loki and she could, like, pool her resources and get free or maybe Loki got bored and just let her go. Eh, Comics. Well, regardless, she's gone, Loki now schemes alone, and he spies on Thor, seeing what's going on with his hated stepbrother. And Thor is consulting with... Anthony Stark, uh, who is, of course, Tony Stark, who is, of course, Iron Man, but nobody in the Marvel Universe really knows that at this point. I, for one, think it is hilarious that Thor is insisting on calling Tony Anthony with his formality. Oh, man, what I love is Tony Stark's amazing 80s mustache. I mean, the Robert Downey Jr. goatee is fine and all, and I guess I'm okay with that being in the comics, but when he just had that little fancy Natalie-attired-looking mustache, it was great. He's a ladies' man. He's yeah. That that's that's his look. I think Robert Downey Jr. should do that. You know, for his last hurrah. Not even just as Iron Man, just in real life. Yeah. yeah. All right, that's it. Avengers Infinity War. I know people have been talking about how great it is that Chris Evans has a beard. Uh, scrap it all. Everybody gets tiny, very neatly trimmed mustaches. <laughs> I think I think Scarlett Johansson could pull it off. I think she totally could. <laughs> oh, man, Jeremy Renner with a little mustache? Oh! <laughs> this is the best idea ever. <laughs> that is. But Thor is explaining Hela's curse to Tony and talking about his broken arm. And thankfully, he's come to the right place because Tony can create uh, an armor for it, kind of like a a sheath for his arm. (laughs) Oh, that word sheath. (laughs) That is forever ruined for me because of this podcast. I didn't even mean to say it there. (laughs) See, see? It it was just right in there. Uh, And and I do love the thing that Tony creates. I love that we get a little uh, science-y montage as he makes it. And it's this sort of golden robot-looking arm thing. And sure enough, it works pretty well. Thor can move his arm. It can bear weight. He can hold his hammer. Nice work, Iron Man. But of course, Loki is incredulous and upset. Unbelievable! Once again, my stepbrother has overcome an incredible handicap with his usual combination of single-mindedness and stupidity. One of the things I enjoy about the very petty Loki that we're seeing in these issues is that anytime Thor does something smart, he finds a way to rationalize it to himself that, no, that was actually dumb, and it was just dumb luck that it worked. It's like he's internalized an old sibling dynamic where, okay, Thor is the pretty one and the strong one, but I'm the smart one. That's what I have going for me. Right. It's like how Malekith only ever really gets offended when somebody outsmarts him. He doesn't care if they beat him up, but if they outsmart him, like, hey, that's his skill. What the hell? And granted, this has been happening to Loki over and over again because Loki, like so many people in Thor and in this run, does not know when to cut his losses. We've seen Thor do that, pushing his luck with Hela. We've seen Hela doing that, pushing her luck with Thor. And now Loki is just pushing that barrier a little bit more. I think it's because he was spending a lot of time with Lorelai, and that was her thing as well. He must have picked it up from her. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully that's the only thing. (laughs) Right. Well, speaking of Loki spending time with people, I guess, uh, now that he's discovered, you were just... (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I started thinking of another sheath joke. <laughs> oh, we are the classy Thor podcast if no. we haven't mentioned. <laughs> we are the classiest, dirtiest Thor podcast that doesn't have an explicit rating. <laughs> That's right, because we don't say certain words, therefore it doesn't count. Anyway, uh, mm. Thor goes to see his daughter, Hela in hell because he has learned in spying on Thor that Thor's got some kind of a curse and his bones are brittle. What's going on with that? So he opens a portal, goes to hell, and checks in on the Queen of the Dead. Who dares to breach Hela's dominion without leave while the warm blood still courses through his beating heart? And Loki smiles and says, Surely there should be some other greeting between us, child. Or have the young finally forsaken all their filial duties in this wretched modern age? Hella gets it. Hello, father. Would you like a fatted calf? I enjoy the glorious bits of just icy bitterness between the two of them. Like, they know they're on the same side. They know they both have these evil goals. But I, I think it's one of those things where if somebody's too much like you, then you don't like them. Exactly. Like, if they both enter an arena, only one can leave and they know it. So perhaps from birth, Hela has realized that she can't get too close to Loki because he will totally screw her over. They do, however, bond over their shared hatred of Thor and they decide to team up, after which Loki leaves, declaring that he's going to summon one of Hela's brothers to fulfill, quote, certain ancient prophecies. Now, if you've been paying attention to the run and you know a bit about Norse mythology, you'll remember that one of the Sapristi kids asked Thor about the Midgard serpent, Jormungand, who is one of Loki's children and in mythology is fated to kill Thor. The fact that this is being mentioned now, the fact that the kid brought it up earlier, that is no accident. And I do love that Simonson is gradually planting these seeds. So when Jormungand does finally become a thing in this run... We've had all that foreshadowing to build him up as the threat that he actually is. Absolutely. And Loki saying this kind of even shocks Hela, who basically says, wow, Loki's hate for Thor puts mine to shame because he's willing to, like, kill his children over this. Right. Well, speaking of the target of Loki's ire, Thor himself is soaring over Midgard, star Earth, and contemplating a return trip to hell to try to convince Hela to break this curse before he's too weak to convince her of anything. And as a reminder, the curse that Hela inflicted upon Thor is that his bones break very easily in combat, or I guess if he trips over something, she didn't really specify. And even as he becomes more and more broken, A, he will never heal any injuries, and B, he can't even die if his injuries get too bad. So this is a big deal. But even with this important uh, goal in mind, his attention is drawn to a flash over a city in the middle of nowhere, and he sees his old foe, Man-Beast, destroying everything. Oh, man. So Man-Beast is like a future karate werewolf, I guess. The High Evolutionary took a wolf and did some stuff and trained him with future fighting skills, which gives us the wonderful line from Thor as Man-Beast kicks Thor the hell over. In truth, I did forget his deadly karate, advanced a million years beyond anything known on Earth today. Comics! <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't even know why plots other than fighting a future karate werewolf exist in, not even comics, just fiction. Or real life, for that matter. Totally. Well, for me, I'm like, why doesn't Man-Beast just go straight and, you know, open up like a super awesome dojo and teach people his future karate? I feel like he would do really well. I mean, let's say you've decided you want to learn the martial arts. Uh, some bullies are kicking sand at you and your girl on the beach or whatever. And you're like, OK, I could go to this dojo, which is taught by a man who trained uh, in Taekwondo. I could go to this dojo. This is uh, somebody who does Krav Maga, the Israeli martial art. Or I could learn martial arts from a future karate werewolf. I mean, there is no contest. People would be lining up around the block. Yeah, I, I think the choice would be clear. 
But Thor and Man-Beast engage in a devastating fight when all of a sudden Man-Beast weakens and falls and then he dies, transforming into an elderly man. And a conveniently located shocked police officer recognizes this man as someone who up until recently was a 24-year-old milkman named Howie Bridger. I love that this is like the 80s and there's a milkman and his name is Howie Bridger. It's so like, you know old town, like, 50s sort of comics. Well, you know, Sal is doing the art on Thor these days, and he's got that old-timey feel. It's true. But Thor continues his journey and sees another Flash in Oberlin, Ohio. And this time he comes across another one of his old villains, the Wrecker of the Wrecking Crew. And Thor's wondering, okay, is this the real Wrecker, or is this some kind of an illusion masking some person who's going to die if I fight him? And the Wrecker was last seen in Secret Wars in 1984, and before then in Thor 304 in 1981. Oh yeah, and that reminds me, the Man-Beast was last seen in Thor 317 in 1982. So these are villains who have been around kind of recently, but certainly not in Simonson's run. Thor realizes whether the Wrecker is real or an illusion, he still needs to protect the innocent, and he keeps him occupied until the Wrecker too weakens and dies, revealing that he's actually immortal. And during these fights, so I love Thor. I think Thor has gotten a lot smarter over the course of Simonson's run and certainly over the course of his history as a character in Marvel Comics. But he's using speech bubbles, not thought bubbles, to talk about his various weaknesses. Like, I gotta say, that's not a strategically good idea right there, Odinson. It's like Superman in the movie telling Lois Lane, oh, by the way, I can't see through lead. Lois Lane, who's a reporter for the Daily Planet. So as all this is going on, as Thor is fighting his various classic foes on his way to hell... Uh, Loki visits Jotunheim, the realm of the giants, and tells the tiny giants that soon Thor will be no more. Now, as a reminder, the frost giants are tiny because at the end of the Baldur the Brave miniseries, which in retrospect I'm really glad we ended up covering in the show because it's super relevant, Baldur used his heat and light powers to shrink the giants by essentially melting their icy power away. So now they're not only not giant-sized, but they're even smaller than normal humans. But Loki offers them a deal— If they swear fealty to him, he will restore them to their rightful size and help them destroy Asgard. And why are we mentioning this in the middle of Thor's fight? Well, that's no coincidence, and soon you will find out why. Speaking of Thor's fight, he reaches New York City, where he was going, and sees another third Flash. It is Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man! Two things about Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. One, Crusher Creel is a wonderfully alliterative name that's fun to say. Try it, just... Crusher Creel. Really savor Crusher Creel. And second, uh, so Jay Edited and I on our Explain the X-Men podcast, every time the Absorbing Man is mentioned, we keep coming to the same thing. So the Absorbing Man, uh, what's he do? Oh, I don't know. He's just he's just really engaging. I, I just want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> he has an absorbing personality. <laughs> exactly. Although I guess we should talk about what his real powers are, Elizabeth. So when he touches something, say wood or metal, he's kind of like Rogue. He absorbs it and becomes it. So he becomes a man of metal or a man of wood or a man of, I don't know, glass. Yeah, that last one's probably a little bit less strategic unless you're the villain in Unbreakable, in which case, hey, go for it. Absolutely. The Absorbing Man was also lasting in Secret Wars in 84, but before that, the last time he appeared in Thor, as far as I know, was number 236 way back in 1975. So we saw in the last arc with Thug Thatcher and Zaniac and stuff like that, Simonson's really bringing back some of the old stuff, and the Absorbing Man, that's another example. He's an iconic Thor villain that hasn't been a specifically Thor villain in quite a while. 
Yeah, it's like during this journey, Thor is like on a this is your life sort of trip. <laughs> These are the crappy parts of your life. <laughs> also, some people are going to turn old and die. <laughs> but as Thor prepares to defend himself, Loki, who is watching this with the giants, gloats that this is actually the real Crusher Creel. And Thor will be loath to fight him because he thinks Crusher is immortal. So Crusher will be able to grind Thor's bones into dust. And this is actually really clever. Loki is breaking the literary rule of three, where things have to come in groupings of three to be thematically effective. His third thing is totally a different thing. Also, he gets to kill a bunch of mortals, which I feel like we should comment on because that's a little bit more evil than Loki usually gets. Yeah, that is pretty jerky. I mean, obviously he puts mortals in danger with his big, you know, grand flawed schemes. But here he's literally just being like, hey, that guy, you're going to die. So is it me, or is Thor fighting all of these illusory slash not illusory villains basically Loki's PowerPoint business presentation to the Frost Giants? <laughs> I guess so. He's like, see him in action. These are people he's fought before, but he's kind of frail now. He's kind of off his game, and you can see that, you know, he's vulnerable. Oh, man, now I'm just imagining there being really awkward, like, way too slow transitions and sound effects every time <laughs> the Thorovision switches angles. This is supposed to advance. Advance! Oh, oh, it's going backward! Who has the remote? I, I, I thought I had this thing paired. It's supposed to be Bluetooth. It's supposed to be easy. Ah. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, too many presentations at San Diego Comic-Con. <laughs> oh, man, this reminds me of too many presentations ever. I always dreaded PowerPoint back Aww. in college. Uh, well, thankfully, we're mainly going to be focusing on Thor fighting things, not PowerPoint. So in New York, the Absorbing Man and Thor are facing off. Thor is concerned. Is this another mortal, maybe? And another combatant shows up. Here comes a new challenger, because suddenly we see Titania, who, if I recall correctly, was a lady professional wrestler who was given superpowers by the Beyonder in Secret Wars. Of course. She's also the Absorbing Man's supervillain partner. And despite trying to fight back as gently as possible, Thor accidentally breaks her neck by slapping her. Oh, snap. <laughs> All kidding aside, this is the second time that Thor has slapped a lady in this time he broke her neck. I'm like, Thor, you gotta chill out a little bit. It does add to the confusion and horror of the scene, though, that the art makes it very clear that Thor just gently taps Titania. And we know, if we know Titania as a character, that she's incredibly tough. So the fact that even when he tries to be careful, things still go horribly wrong, he's really getting thrown off his game. He's really starting to get paranoid, which is, of course, exactly Loki's goal. Well, in the other facsimiles that Loki produced, they were as strong as their real counterparts. So in making this false Titania, as later we, we determine, Loki has done something different, breaking the rule of three again. Oh, man. So Loki is tickled pink, well, I guess green, by this whole thing, and the giants are indeed convinced. Thor is getting injured very easily in these fights, he's getting confused, he's becoming more and more despairing. They do believe that he will indeed be helpless to stop their plans of attacking Asgard, and they agree to work with Loki. But of course, they immediately and privately kind of plot to kill him after Loki helps them. Okay, I know they're whispering, but he's in the same panel. And I feel like giants aren't very good at whispering. Like they do that thing where they just basically say it at the same volume, <laughs> but in like a different whispery sounding voice. I know. I'm like, dude, can't you wait until Loki leaves before you start plotting to betray him? I feel like this is why the frost giants always lose. And one frost giant says... And how could anyone so short be truly trustworthy? 
Hey, hey, I'm 5'6", and I'm, like, really trustworthy. Come on. You really are. And plus, hey, Frost Giants, you guys are super short right now. But I guess they are untrustworthy because they're betraying Loki, so... Oh, okay. So, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. They're actually being pretty straightforward about it. <laughs> I can respect that. But with a shthoom, a furious absorbing man smashes through the ground into the subway. He is enraged that Thor has apparently killed Titania, and he wants blood. And to better spill said blood, the Absorbing Man touches a nearby train car and becomes made of steel. But what I like is that he's not just the Absorbing Man, but shiny silver. He actually is made of square plates of steel riveted carefully together, except for his ears and face, which look like they're just sort of sticking out of his metal armor body. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense, but I'm so glad it works this way. It's so much more fun. It's kind of like with Colossus of the X-Men. When he turns into steel, he's got those weird, like, parallel bands on his arms and legs and sides it doesn't necessarily make sense but it makes it very clear what's going on and it just looks cooler see i always felt with like colossus it's so he could like move and flex you know they're like little teeny joints well right i would think that too but then you look at his face his face doesn't have any bands usually yeah can he not move his face i feel like he's got to be able to emote facially oh my god yeah yeah no terrible <laughs> oh god, yeah. otherwise he would just have hinges and stuff he'd have that weird apocalypse fish mouth thing oh, he'd look like pinocchio before he's a real boy <laughs> oh, Piotr Rasputin, I'm glad you're already a real boy who happens to be made of metal with strange banding on your arms and legs and sides. <laughs> but the Absorbing Man hasn't burned out like the other fake villains, so Thor realizes he must be real. So Thor knows this fight's going to continue. He quickly flies to the surface to get some more room where there aren't civilians like right the hell there. And the Absorbing Man figures he's running away. And in fact, Thor does run away a little bit to try to buy some time to convince the Absorbing Man that wasn't the real Titania. There's trickery at work. Then we see that Chuck Churkle, one of the Marvel Universe's, you know, friendly newscasters, is reporting live nearby saying... Is the true nature of superpowered beings revealed here, live, at last? Do they fail the test when confronted by a menace of genuinely mind-staggering proportions? Are they super only when they swagger among ordinary men? This fight could be the answer. I love how your Chuck Churkle voice is kind of like Stan Lee. You know... <laughs> They both are trying really hard to sell something. As as uh, you said, they are sensationalistic and alliterative. They totally are. This kind of reminds me, like, this kind of uh, making something as sensationalistic as possible. It's like the 1980s equivalent of clickbait. It's true. I mean, Chuck Churkle, he's being kind of a jerk here, but he's just really trying to, you know, beat out the Daily Bugle or other, you know, news sources. Right? Chuck Churkle. More like Chuck Jerkle. <laughs> I actually love Chuck Churkle. I love him a lot. Do we ever see him again after this? Okay, what's weird, we do see him in the final set of issues we'll be covering in our last episode, but they get confused and have the black man that Chuck Turkle looks like right now just be the cameraman, and some generic-looking white dude is the one that they call Chuck and is talking. I don't know what happened there, because while Simonson does take over for that issue, he drew Chuck Turkle in his first appearance. He should remember what Chuck Turkle looks like. I guess he was super busy. You know, he was drawing X-Factor, he's writing Thor, you know, he's got a lot on his plate. Maybe, but, you know, at least we see Chuck Jorgel in some form again. It's true. Well, while trying to get away, Thor calls up a windstorm, but the Absorbing Man absorbs it and becomes the Furious Wind. And in his whirling about... Crusher Creel also sends his big wrecking ball, his giant ball on a chain, directly at Thor, who blocks it with his hammer. 
That's exactly what the Absorbing Man wanted, because now he turns his Wrecking Ball and himself into Uru Metal. That's right, the Absorbing Man and his weapon are now made of the same thing as Mjolnir itself. That's no good. Yeah, he shatters Thor's ribs with a heavy blow, and it is cringe-inducingly brutal. One thing I think that they do really well in this arc is show, like, how painful this is for Thor. Like, I'm cringing right along with every blow. Yeah, we're not used to seeing superhero fights actually do any real damage. Like, maybe somebody gets a cut or their costume gets messed up or something. But Thor's bones are very brittle, like even more brittle than your average human at this point. And you can feel every impact. You can feel those bones grinding against each other as Thor tries to move, as he tries to continue fighting. It's, oh, it's kind of hard to read. It is. And Thor is then thrown through a French patisserie, the owner of which says, Mon Dieu, les croissants! I really love that in this big dramatic fight, we just have a random, like, stereotypical Frenchman show up. I don't know. I mean, maybe the comic relief messes it up a little, but I kind of love it. (laughs) Well, speaking of comic relief, Chuck Churkle says, Will Mr. and Mrs. America have to pay the ultimate price for the failure of these vigilantes? Tonight at 11, an in-depth analysis of superheroes and why we love to hate them with Sue Sermons. That's an awesome name, too. Thor is just in agony at this point. I mean, he's broken more and more with every single blow. He doesn't know if he can win. And he says, Is this truly the final battle for the mighty Thor? Has Ragnarok at last fallen on the greatest warrior of Asgard that he must die in the dust, slaughtered in the senseless rampage of a conscienceless foe? Nay, I must stand, no matter what the price. Let me not face death on my knees, but boldly as befits a fighting heart. What I like about this, what we talked about earlier, is how with this arc, a lot of the characters are kind of forced to face their essential elements. You know, like Thor has been stripped of his invulnerability and a lot of his strength, and he's kind of left asking himself, like, Am I still a hero? Can I still fight? Can I flee? You know, and it's just a really powerful moment of seeing what makes Thor Thor. And in fact, even as he's decided that he will fight the Absorbing Man, he will fight to his last, he remembers, wait a minute, I can't die. If I just get beaten all to hell, all I'm going to be is a big mess of agony. I won't get that warrior's death. I won't get this glorious end. I will just be broken. I will be ground to dust. That's not going to help anybody, and so he prepares, in fact, to run away from Crusher Creel, to leave Creel to his rampage and retreat. So he prepares to teleport away, but the Absorbing Man absorbs the teleportation vortex, whirling chaotically until he vanishes, appearing alone in a dead, empty, post-apocalyptic wasteland. Yeah, I do love that the only reason Thor wins is essentially by accident, by the bad luck of the Absorbing Man trying to absorb something he shouldn't have. You know, it's I, I like seeing our heroes have awesome heroic triumphs, but this arc is kind of about breaking Thor down. Like you said, making him face his own weakness, making him face his vulnerability. And so this really adds to that sense of self-doubt because he's walking away from the fight. The Absorbing Man is gone. The city is safe. But he remembers what he was going to do. He was going to flee and leave this adoring public who are now clamoring around him, being all grateful and asking him questions, especially the reporters. He was going to leave all them to Crusher Creel's aggression. He is ashamed and he is gravely injured. And there's a fantastic panel that Buscema did of Thor's 
pale, sweaty, grimacing face. Like, he looks like he is going to die or throw up or something. And in fact, amid the various reporters still pointing microphones in his face, he collapses. And we'll return to Thor in a bit, but meanwhile, in Asgard... Heimdall is investigating the source of the clouds of mourning and despair hanging over part of Asgard. He goes to find Amora the Enchantress. She's taken to her bed in grief over the death of Scourge the Executioner back in the Hell Ark. And Heimdall isn't having any of this. We'd seen a brief romantic connection between Heimdall, the previous Watcher of the Rainbow Bridge, and Amora the Enchantress before... And right now, he slings Amora over his shoulder and carries her outside, saying that there's no point in moping like this. Which, I gotta say, like, Scourge didn't die that long ago. This reminds me of in New Teen Titans when Donna Wonder Girl keeps getting upset at Coriander Starfire for still mourning the death of her fiancé, I mean, after he's been dead for one whole month. Yeah, seriously, I mean, people gotta take some time here. But yeah, Heimdall picks Amora up over his shoulder and carries her outside. And she's enraged, and frankly, I was a little enraged too. You know, this actually reminded me of McClintock, an old John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara movie, where at the end, you know, they are a feuding married couple, and John Wayne decides to end their estrangement by, like, dragging her outside and spanking her and then forcing her to, like, run after the wagon home, you know? Just one of those things that at the time was, like, spunky fun and has not aged well at all. Oh. Oh, patriarchy, you sure are a thing. And the Enchantress makes her displeasure known. Let me go, Heimdall. Release me this instant. To what end? So that you may mourn forever the death of the executioner whom you spurned from time out of mind when he was alive? He died bravely, Amora, and we should honor his memory, not wash it with tears. And here they run into Balder and his two ravens. And Balder asks if Amora needs assistance, but she refuses. And Balder mentions that, hey, they're about to sheathe the Sword of Surtur. <laughs> sheathe. <laughs> sheathe. So you mentioned that Amora <laughs> refuses Balder's help. And it's interesting the way this is done because it's a technique we've seen before with the speech bubbles where there's a large, mostly empty speech bubble and a word in very small letters in the middle. In this case, that word being no. Like she's, I don't know, embarrassed? And my interpretation here was that there was a part of her that was just putting on this front of mourning that maybe the intent was that she really did want Heimdall to kind of take the upper hand. But I don't like that reading. I hope that's not what's going on here. Yeah, my interpretation was that she would be even more humiliated if another man had to rescue her from Heimdall. Like, more like she's embarrassed to even be seen like this and she doesn't want to make a bigger deal over it. I'm not sure, but it's uh, this is not my favorite scene. I like Heimdall a lot. I like the Enchantress a lot. And I feel like their dynamic has generally been one of, at times, some teasing, but largely respect. And that's not really what we're seeing right now. Yeah, it's definitely Heimdall thinking he knows what's best for Amora, which I think his intentions are good, but his actions are questionable. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying before, he may be able to see everything, but that doesn't mean he knows everything. Right? Well, speaking of the sheathing <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> oh, geez, of uh, Searcher's Sword Twilight, that's where we go next as Balder in his full purple and gold regalia and surrounded by various Asgardians presides over this grand event. And we see a bunch of little Asgardian cranes lifting up Twilight and slowly placing it into a giant goddamn sword sheath. And Balder proclaims, 
From this time forth shall Surtur's blade be a warning to the enemies of the gods, that those who dare to challenge us shall know the hopelessness of their ambition and be afraid. And he names it Twilight of the Gods. Hey, that's a rough translation of the word Ragnarok, which is a strange little reference since it's just referencing the mythology we're already in. Yeah, I mean, it's complex, but it's a good symbol. It's kind of like um, Indiana Jones or like some monument. Exactly. And I do like the fact that, you know, Balder knows that this sword will be drawn again. It's going to be drawn at the end of days. It's going to be drawn as Ragnarok occurs, as the Twilight of the Gods does take place. And so by choosing to display it in a way that the enemies of Asgard can see that they've beaten Surtur once before, he's not saying that they're going to win Ragnarok, that they are going to be successful in preventing the end of the world. That, that stuff's been foretold. He's just sort of showing off that they will not go down lightly, and that does really fit the ethos, I think, of the space Viking version of these gods. Well, and originally they had the Eternal Flame as part of Asgard, so this kind of makes sense. Like, they often take their enemies' weapons and keep them. So Heimdall and the Enchantress, one is no longer carrying the other, but after the sheathing, they do head to what's left of the Rainbow Bridge and have a significantly more respectful conversation. Amora asks Heimdall to love her and to burn her sorrows away with a fire of passion. And honestly, I can't really blame her. I mean, she doesn't like herself after the way she treated Scourge, who has now died. She's now realizing that if she had to do it again, she would do it differently. She just kind of wants to escape. And Heimdall says, What joy could the arms of the most beautiful goddess of all the Golden Realm hold for me when she is a stranger to the power that binds two souls together? You are like all men. You seek to humiliate me before every eye. Thor in his infatuation with mortals, Balder in his priggish lust for fallen women, Odin in his wandering eye. I know your every corrupt desire, and you let Scourge die! I mean, damn, Amora, she is kind of right about all of those people. What I really like about this scene and how I feel it kind of balances kind of how she was treated disrespectfully earlier in this issue is that you really see her point of view. You see what makes her tick. She feels like men are her enemy. She feels like they seek to humiliate her. So she takes what power she has, which is her power of attractiveness, and uses it to get ahead. It actually reminds me of one of the more charitable interpretations of the way gender is handled in A Song of Ice and Fire, the, the Game of Thrones books. I mean, you see a lot of women who are manipulative, and certainly that's something we see in the Thor comics during this run, but at the same time, in a really sexist society like exists in Westeros and Game of Thrones, and like I think exists in Asgard to a large degree, those are kind of the powers that women can have, and so exercising those powers, deciding to play that role and play it well, I can't fully blame them for doing so. I don't know that that's the intention behind it, but that certainly is a reading that I enjoy. Absolutely. And Amora, who is furious, zaps Heimdall, turning him into a tree to match his heart of wood with a scratched. But Heimdall just walks out of the tree because his Uru metal sword prevents him from being enchanted in such ways. And Heimdall asks her, did you ever once tell him that you loved him? And then there's just a panel of Amora just sobbing against him, you know, at the end of the broken rainbow bridge. And it is 
it's so sad and it's just beautiful. It really does humanize her. I mean, we've always liked Amora more than, say, Lorelai, but she's also been quite self-serving, quite aloof, and we do see the human, or at least the god underneath that, and I think it speaks well of her. Like, after this scene, I find myself liking the Enchantress even more. Yeah, I find this to be the most interesting I've ever found her, and it makes me want to see what happens with this character in the future. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, a lot of the time she does go back to playing the villain. Like, even in the issue of Thor that came out today as we record this podcast, she's back to just being a straight-up villain. An interesting villain, certainly, but not the more gray, complex character that we see here. Well, speaking of villains... We see Loki again gloating about Thor's curse and about how he's prepared for the giant's betrayal. And he is using a magic welding mask and these heavy gloves at a giant flaming cauldron. Looks like something out of a foundry. He renders and pours liquid metal into a glorious fuchsia angry-faced vase. I love this vase so much. (laughs) And he swears that, much like a bad boyfriend, if he can't have Asgard, no one can. And he throws the container into a deep chasm and a scarlet stream of screaming faces races toward Asgard. Oh, yeah. It's like that one scene in the Ghostbusters movie, the first one, after the containment unit gets broken and all the ghosts are just streaming everywhere. And, of course, Walter Simonson always did love a good stream of demons, and apparently Sal Buscema has picked up that torch. Stream of demons. I think we found our new band name. Oh, man. That's like, what, a sort of a <laughs> space rock band? Yeah. Space metal. I, I like everything about this plan. <laughs> it would be like if Hawkwind just got a lot heavier. But next, we are in Svartalfheim, where the gates of the fairy are being breached with a crack wham Yeah, the portals between Svartalfheim and Midgard are shattering one by one. And here we do see the way Simonson handles the realm of the Dark Elves. It's still sort of connected to, or under, or at least very closely associated with Earth. Later on, and in mythology, it'll be very much its own realm, much more distinct, but now it's sort of Earth-dependent. And that's a problem, because every time there's one of these big impacts, one of the portals between the realm of the Dark Elves and the realm of the humans is destroyed irrevocably. And Wormwood goes to investigate and sees that it's because of Thor. Behold! A mighty steel foundry in the mortal metropolis of Pittsburgh! Even now, the smith smites the perilous metal! Now, I don't have anything against Pittsburgh. I've never been there, but this just struck me as so funny. The mortal metropolis of Pittsburgh. (laughs) I will forever love that about the Thor comics. The fact that we can have, you know, this sort of blue-collar city and freaking the elves of the realm of fairy kind of sharing the same sentence. I always enjoy that. Like, it's a little silly, but it's also just cool seeing all these genres mashed up together. And we see that Thor is forging armor of Asgardian steel, which, if completed, will cut off Svartalfheim from the mortal realm forever. So the Dark Elves figure, this isn't cool. This guy may not even know what he's doing, but that doesn't matter. Our realm is being destroyed. We need to summon our most dangerous fallen hero. We need to summon Grendel. And you did some research on Grendel, right? Yeah, so Grendel is from the old tale Beowulf. It was like a myth in real life about uh, Old England, Middle England. One of those. Yeah, Some direction of England. Uh, But yeah, I read that back in college. There's a dude named Beowulf. He protects a mead hall from this monster called Grendel. He rips off his arm. The monster dies. Grendel's mother is a big deal. There's a dragon. There was a weird uh, Zemeckis CG movie about it that I liked more than most people did. But yes, Grendel is this guy. Now, this isn't the first time he's been in even Marvel comics. He was, in fact, in 1970's Tower of Shadows number six. I 
couldn't track down a copy of that because it's a little bit obscure, but I did see the cover. It features a tiny man armed with a full-sized pencil fighting a rat on the cover. So I'm pretty sure it's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like with a cover like that, it must be good. But as the Dark Elves summon their champion, we the readers get to find out just how things got here, how Thor got to Pittsburgh. That means it's time for a flashback. And Thor is in the hospital after his battle with the Absorbing Man in New York City. And even though his arm is broken and his ribs are severely cracked, Thor checks himself out. He's not going to stay there because he realizes everybody's coming after him. His villains are starting to realize that he is weaker. He is defeatable for the first time. It kind of reminds me of Charles Soule's Death of Wolverine miniseries, where once Wolverine loses his healing factor, all of the villains come after him at once. Mm-hmm. And that, again, like lends kind of this feeling of like majesty and full circle to this ending, you know, story arc of Walter Simonson's run. So Thor heads to Damascus Steel in Pittsburgh, where he once reforged his hammer. And what I love here is his mortal guise is a trench coat, which makes me think of the thing, which makes me happy. Or Raphael or Nighthawk and Defenders. <laughs> I just keep coming back to all the trench coat mentions and tighten up the defense. I know we mentioned that podcast a lot, but it's lovely. <laughs> you should totally listen to it. Also, we were both on it. Absolutely. But, you know, I love that he's kind of dropped his Sigurd Jarlson thing completely. Like, he has no time for a ponytail and glasses. He is Thor, he is off-duty, and he's got his trench coat. Yup. And the boss here remembers him. Like you said, Thor once reforged his hammer here. That was, I believe, in Journey into Mystery number 120 from 1965. Wow. Talk about bringing it way back. Totally. So he has the money. He rents out the foundry for the week so he can melt metal and call down lightning with his hammer to transform it into Asgardian steel. This is so freaking cool. And once again, of course, it's smaller scale because as this run approaches completion, the scale does narrow, the scope does narrow. So instead of having the entire realm of Nidavellir, instead of having these dwarven smithies forging something from the heart of a star, we have a foundry in Pittsburgh. And that doesn't mean it's less important, that doesn't mean it's less epic, but it does mean it's more personal in a way. Well, Thor is more vulnerable. He doesn't have his father anymore. He doesn't have his strength. He's just himself back on his own resources. And he clears the building of mortals so he can begin this very important work. Though every blow that rings brings fresh agony to my sides, I must persevere. And he's almost completed his armor when the Dark Elves attack. And Thor realizes, crap, he has got to get out of here. I mean, he's in no condition to fight. He doesn't have his armor yet, but he's stopped by Grendel. Flight is impossible, Thor. The Thunderer dies here this day. And Grendel immediately attacks. Thor blocks with Mjolnir, but that shatters his hand and he drops his hammer. So broken arm, broken ribs, broken hand. This is not good. But Thor says, Stay back, denizens of the dark. Though Hela hath robbed the son of Odin of his fighting prowess, he hath retained his fighting heart, and no mere dwellers of fairy shall bring Thor down to his doom. And he releases the molten iron on the elves, which is gross and awesome. Yeah, they're, of course, especially vulnerable to iron, but, I mean, pretty much everybody's vulnerable to molten iron. <laughs> so the Thor show is looking much less appealing to the frost giants and Loki at this point, who are, of course, still watching through their scrying pool. And we see Loki projecting a translucid spheroid to Midgard. There's a sequence here of 
Iceman, you know, like the founding X-Man, currently a member of X-Factor, disappearing behind Beast from X-Factor headquarters. And what I like here is that the issue of X-Factor that came out this same month, number 15, I believe, it's got the exact same sequence of panels. You don't find out the explanation in X-Factor, and you don't find out the context for Beast and Iceman's conversation in Thor, but it's a nice little bit of the book that Simonson was drawing, X-Factor, and the book that he was writing, Thor, lining up very well. So, this is Loki's strategy. He's kidnapping Iceman using a weird science fiction gun because the giants aren't really sure if they can trust him anymore. What's going on here? Well, you see, Bobby, who is Iceman, he is immobilized on Loki's machine, which is a giant condenser, which amplifies Iceman's powers, forcing him to ice up and causing him incredible pain. And Loki uses his confusing Kirby-tacular machinery to channel the mutant's powers into a beam of pure cold directly at the frost giants and suddenly they start to grow and grow and grow meanwhile thor is battling grendel trying to roll with his attacks and avoid any direct blows farewell thunder god you are scarcely a shadow of the fierce warrior i expected let the fires of the furnace put an end to this charade a shadow i may be grendel but even a shadow may have substance and he kicks Grendel in the face, freeing himself. But Thor is quickly overwhelmed by the elves and Grendel once more. They're ready to strike the killing blow when Thor twists free. And there's a weird panel here where all of a sudden he doesn't have a beard. Did you notice that? I, I didn't. I looked really closely. He's a beard, no beard, beard. So he's, he like twisted so hard he like was free of his beard for a second. Oh man, glitch in the Matrix. <laughs> but in a last desperate move, Thor calls for Mjolnir. Your hammer, Thunderer, shall not avail you. Thor dies the true death here and now. Though I should perish a thousand times, monster, I will never surrender to mine enemies. If this truly be Thor's final battle, then let the Skalds forever say that though his body failed him in the end, his fighting heart spurned every thought of defeat. And he stabs Grendel in the stomach with a steel bar. And this is brutal. The sound effect we have here, the like, this is cold iron. We know elves are vulnerable to it, and it's going through Grendel's armor and flesh and the other side of his armor. And Grendel's super tough, so he survives it, but even so, like, there are just so many injuries that just make you cringe and wince when you look at the panel. And you were comparing this to Thor's hopeless fight against Curse. Right, right. We were talking about how the stakes just keep rising and rising when Thor fights Curse a couple stories ago, and how Thor has to get out his belt of strength, and he has to team up with Beta Ray Bill and the Power Pack, and they have to drain their hammers dry of energy so that Katie Power can zap Curse. Oh and this is the same kind of hopelessness here, but there's no belt of strength, there's no Beta Ray Bill, there's no Power Pack, and Thor's incredibly weak as compared to his normal state you really get the impression that Thor's going to die. That somehow this is going to be the end of Thor. There have been so many permanent consequences already, and Simonson has just amped up the tension and amped up the threat, and it looks like it's all over. But Grendel really appears to be dying, and he asks if Thor will ease Grendel's final hour by pleading for his life. Nay, Grendel, the true son of Odin hath found his peace at last. And thanks to Hela, you will find that I am much more difficult to kill than thee. And of course, Grendel and all the Dark Elves end up saluting Thor because 
Thor has kind of found his true grit. He has found his true fighting heart, and he's prevailing, and they're impressed. And Loki, still watching, is so not okay with this. He wanted Thor humiliated before he died, and if Thor, like, you know, dies honorably, or at least gets the crap kicked out of him honorably since he can't die, that ruins everything. That ruins Loki's whole day. He'll have to pour another one out for the day that might have been. <laughs> and so he pledges to break Thor's heart, his fighting spirit, so he brings him to his castle to the Fury of the Elves. Yeah, Thor just all of a sudden is enveloped in a golden sphere and vanishes. When he appears in Loki's castle, he's unconscious from the magical trip. Welcome, Thor, to your home away from home. Pleasant dreams, Thor. They may be the last thou shalt ever have. And behind Loki, Iceman is unconscious from the strain of having so much of his ice power pulled out of him and channeled toward the giants. So Loki turns off the machine. Iceman's done his job. Thor has had the hell beaten out of him and now is Loki's captive. Things are looking up. <laughs> Everything's coming up, Loki. Of course, except that the newly re-empowered Frost Giants are really mad that their, you know, popsicle treat has been turned off. They want the source of the cold, so they burst into Loki's castle, dwarfing Loki. Yeah, they were giants before, now they're like extra giant giants. They're so big! They're like extra giant-sized giants. And Loki stands alone, and in fact, that is the name of the last issue we'll be covering, when Loki stood alone. There's a crash as the giants smash down the door, mad with desire for more cold, and Loki is standing there in his awesome armor. Like, it's that same green union suit thing he usually wears, but now there are these gold plates all over it. He's got this sweet gold helmet headdress thing going on, a big yellow cape. And Loki doesn't have any internal conflict. He immediately flees and then teleports Thor's unconscious broken body out to them, saying, hey, by the way, Thor had promised to kill all these frost giants as soon as he woke up. I mean, damn, Loki, that's cold. Like, you're taking the unconscious, helpless body of your stepbrother and just giving it to a bunch of enraged frost giants to tear apart? Like, that's bad even for you, dude. At least the giants are like, wake him up, then we'll kill him. You know, they're like, gentlemen-like. Oh, well, Loki heads back to his lab with uh, Thor's near corpse as a distraction for the giants, and he finds that Iceman has overloaded the big machine he was hooked up to. Everything is covered in just thick layers of ice and frost, and this isn't right. Loki figures this must be why the giants have lost their minds, because there was too much cold. They weren't supposed to get that much cold. And Loki tells Iceman to quit it already. Ugh, can't hear, you creep. I've got ice in my ears. Oh man, that is so Bobby Drake. He's all about terrible dad jokes. <laughs> But the giants can feel him, and they break in to get more, and everything's frozen now. So having nowhere left to flee, Loki really does confront them and stick around, and he's actually pretty imposing. Take one step further at your peril, Grundroth. This is the house of Loki, and he bids you halt! And he bids them halt with a goddamn fireball, which straight up melts a couple of the frost giants. Like, they just liquefy, begging for their lives. It's brutal. Yeah, that was pretty creepy. But they catch Loki and hold him down, just in time for Thor to awaken and be impressed by Loki's bravery, saying, Woe to Thor that he should have witnessed such a sight. Loki's bravery before impossible odds reveals Thor's shame and the fullness of its disgrace. 
So Thor smashes in and buries the giants under a wall, and he takes Loki, now unconscious, with him, and follows the cold Iceman, and he recognizes his uniform. Right, because it was not very long ago at all that Thor met Angel, Cyclops, and Marvel Girl in the Morlock Tunnels under New York. He recognizes, hey, it's the same big X jumpsuit. This must be a member of X-Factor. You know those X-Men. They're just so good at their personal branding. They really are. Oh, man, I'm reminded of some of Cable's designs where he seriously has no less than like 12 different X's somewhere over his body. You know, he's not afraid of overkill. (laughs) So true. (laughs) In many respects. But Thor quickly realizes what's up. This is all Loki's fault. But Loki, in his way, did save Thor from the Dark Elves. Thor has not forgotten that were it not for you, there should have been no victory over Surtur in the final encounter. And today, win or lose, that debt shall be paid. You have taught the Thunder God a lesson in courage. Mayhap he can teach you one of honor. And he uses Loki's spheroid gun to retrieve his armor from the Pittsburgh steel mill. And through the agony, Thor epically whirls Mjolnir to Thratharoom! Odin's ruined magic into the armor itself. The whole background just turns to yellow energy lines radiating outward from Thor. This is the greatest way I can think of to get dressed. Oh, yeah. This is way more metal than being sewn into your clothes. Yeah, or than, you know, Loki's spell that he cast to quickly armor up earlier on when the giants came in. Gee, maybe Thor really is trying to one-up Loki all the time. Maybe Loki has a point. Well, we don't get to fully see what happens with Thor's epic vesting because the giants burst into the room. They find Iceman lying on the ground. They find Loki's unconscious body. And there's a voice. They ask who it is. They ask this person to identify himself. And we see a shadow who then steps into the light and the first reveal of Thor in his new armor. I mean, we've seen this armor, like, on the ground. We've seen him forging it, but seeing Thor actually wearing this, I love it so much! So let's talk about this armor. Oh, man, where do we even start? I guess we can start at the top. He's got a golden version of his standard Thor helm, you know, the skull cap with the spike on top and the wings, but it's also got, like, a protective domino mask over his face. It's got this chainmail stuff hanging uh, sort of from it to cover the back of his neck like the Lawrence of Arabia, the the Thorence of Arabia kind of thing. And then there's this, like, blue hauberk tunic kind of thing with these elaborate C-shaped clasps that hold his red cape on, silver lining uh, around the blue. He's got golden banded armor around his arms and his legs. It's just so loud and gaudy and wonderful. Yeah, this armor is, like, equal parts impressive and ridiculous. And he's still got those big black knee things that his boots normally have, because of course he does. He wouldn't be Thor without them. It's true. And We were talking about this uh, armor, and it was kind of reminding me of, like, Star Trek, the original series, when Kirk and them would have some sort of fancy dinner with, like, an ambassador, and all of a sudden they would switch from their regular uniforms to like the kimono type tops with the extra you know gold that just means extra gold it just means this is extra solemn and important and i do love that it's this loud colorful design because this is thor at his most vulnerable having redoubled his heroism and so bringing in some of that superhero bright coloring that kind of works for me yes it's a little gaudy but there's nothing wrong with that this dude is a space viking and he's a space viking who wears his feelings on his sleeve or in his armor as the case may be (laughs) and thor has appeared to have renewed his fighting spirit as well saying step back creatures of evil or face my wrath we were sired by emir oldest of all 
None who lives may give us orders. My sire was ruler of the gods, rash thirst. Odin was my father, and the thunder and lightning are my birthright. They speak my name in whispers in the nurseries of thine icy home. And Mjolnir goes, Kring! And the giants have heard about Thor's curse, Loki told them, so they figured, hey, we'll just try to throw him around a lot and shatter his bones within his armor. But as Thor blocks a giant's enormous axe, like bigger than Thor himself with Mjolnir, just bracing against the ground, holding up something twice his own size, he says that no, the armor has become his body. He has merged with this armor. It's a part of him now. And he's as strong as he ever was and smashes the living hell out of the giants. And Thor is honorably victorious, but still worries. His armor has been tested successfully, but he worries now that the true test will be of his heart and soul. And that's a theme we're going to keep coming back to, and that's the theme that this arc really hammers home. Everybody is forced to confront who they are, like you said, and with Thor, he's just taken for granted being a damn near invincible warrior. Now he's not. He's found some workarounds. He got that arm protector from Tony Stark. He's created this armor for himself from Asgardian Steel in Pittsburgh. But these are just sort of stopgaps, you know? This is him just doing his best to deal with the effects of Hela's Curse without having solved it. Really, all Thor has left, what he keeps coming back to, is his warrior's heart, his warrior's spirit. And that's been failing him here and there. He's fled from fights. He was shamed by Loki, who, as dishonorable as he has, at least stood up to the giants. Thor's not in a good headspace right now. Well, let's get back to the armor. You know, it's part of him now. Would you say that Thor is sheathed in his armor? (laughs) In fact, I would, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. I'll stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as the sheathed Thor ponders his fate, the frost giants, or at least those that survived, which is like maybe half of them, trudge away from Loki's castle. Their leader, Grundroth, is still alive, and he has a plan. It is time to awaken the Midgard Serpent. It is time to awaken Jormungand. It is time to awaken Thor's Bane and Thor's Death. Which is an incredible turn of events, which we will get to in our next episode. In the meantime, we come back to Heimdall in the Enchantress as they stand at the edge of the broken Rainbow Bridge. It must be difficult, Amora, to be so lovely, either in laughter or in anger. Do not seek to appease me, Heimdall. You are too bright and beautiful to waste your tears on empty regrets. Better to live now and regret nothing later. I find, Heimdall, that you make it very difficult to stay angry with you. But did you have to carry me off as though I were a cask of mead? But as they converse, as they flirt in a very solemn, haughty fashion, suddenly Amora becomes dizzy. She loses her strength and she collapses. Heimdall doesn't know what to do. He picks her up before she can fall off the edge of the Rainbow Bridge, which she almost does, and takes her back to Asgard. And speaking of Asgard, Kevin and Mick, you remember the kids of Ruby, Thug Thatcher's old mob mall from way back in the day, who are now orphans who were taken in by Volstag? They're playing with Volstag's children, but they're just getting whooped. It is not going well for these mortals. Yeah, physically, they are just mortal children, and they can't withstand the strength of Asgardians. And as Kevin wails for his mommy, Fandral and Hogan the Grim arrive. And these two-thirds of the Warriors Three acknowledge that no mortal child could really stand up against an Asgardian, but they have a solution. They lead Kevin and Mick to a meadow, 
And Hogan the Grim pulls out from one of his pouches one of the apples of Eadun, one of the apples that makes the Asgardians live basically forever, that grants them their strength, their longevity, all that good stuff. And suddenly Siv appears. She's challenging Hogan on this, but he says they have the right. And she quickly realizes that she's pissed off for other reasons. Forgive me, Hogan. I spoke in my anger of other things. That is very mature, actually. I love the Lady Sif. I love her so much. I know. I wish we had more of her in these arcs. For serious. So Kevin and Mick each eat just one slice of the apple of Eadun, because they have to sort of get used to it, and all of their injuries they got playing rough with Volstag's other children heal, and also their clothes heal. They, like, sort of unrip. Those apples of Eadun are pretty hardcore. That reminds me of um, the fill-in issue, 370 with Loki and Sundance. Oh, yeah, the one we covered in that uh, preview bonus episode. Yeah, yeah, where Loki restores Sundance and it actually restores his clothes, too. So this is like an Asgardian thing, I guess. This must be canon. The apples of Eodun not only are the world's greatest medic, they're also the world's greatest tailor. Totally. So Sif, Kevin, and Mick then watch Foundrel and Hogan the Grim play fight. And Hogan beats Fandral handily, but the kids are still wondering how they're going to be able to fit in as ordinary kids here in Asgard. Hogan, however, has some warm words for them, which, you know, given how grim he is, is kind of a surprise. Though one must possess skill to best Fandral as I have done, this skill is the least of talents. Such power as you have seen is a power of the mind and of the heart. To you, Kevin, and to you, Mick... I will give the gift of faith. Tis truly said on earth that faith can move mountains. I will be your mountain, and in the end, you will move me. But this inspiration doesn't extend to the, I don't know, consciousness, muscle tension of some of the other people there, because Fandral and Sif are overtaken by the same sickness that we saw the Enchantress overtaken by. They become faint, they become weary, they can barely stand up. So they all figure that... They need to head over to the house of Volstag. They need to get to somewhere safe and check on the rest of Volstag's family. When they get there, unfortunately, Kevin and Mick, who are unaffected, having to even practically carry Hildy with them, everyone's already out. Except Volstag, who, just as they open the door, teeters on his feet and falls backward with a loud GAROOM! Leaving only Kevin and Mick awake, leaving all of the gods unconscious and merely these two scared children all alone among them. And we see that the sickness has pervaded Asgard as in the throne room, Baldur's advisor suddenly stiffens and collapses, and in comes Heimdall carrying a similarly stiff-as-a-board Amora. And then Heimdall falls too, and Baldur begins to weaken. Surely this cannot be the end. Not like this. Shall Asgard perish without a single defender rising on her behalf? Shall all that we have done crumble in the dust... And yet no measure of the enemy taken? Only the son of Odin may help us now. But where is Asgard's mightiest warrior in her desperate hour of need? And he falls too. Everybody is just a stiff, unconscious form. I mean, okay, so I'm reading through Harry Potter right now. I've decided to finally become culturally literate. I've read Chamber of Secrets. I know what's really going on here. But... This is not looking good for our heroes. I mean, we have Thor beaten down psychologically, even though he's now renewed to a degree physically. Then we have Asgard itself with seemingly all of its defenders and even all of its inhabitants unconscious due to, presumably, that fancy vase that Loki threw in the chasm. This is a dark hour for our heroes. This is the end of the Empire Strikes Back. Things are not looking good for 
anybody. With only one episode left, Elizabeth, could there possibly be any triumph for our heroes? Could things possibly turn around before Simonson finishes his run? Tune in next week, true believers. No, just kidding. That's not the end of this podcast episode. Because we still have the recognitions of merit. And Miles, you can start us off with the crack doom Award. Okay, so this was a particularly rich arc in terms of sound effects. I really had to narrow it down. There were so many that I loved. For my runner-up, I think I would have to select the crack which is the sound of Mjolnir's lightning striking the molten as guardian steel of Thor's armor. It is so gloriously badass, and it sounds kind of like crack doom which, well, I'll always give a sound effect some credit for that. But what I had to actually go with was one that we mentioned a little bit ago, the scrack as Thor impales Grendel through his armor and body and armor again with an iron rod from the foundry. It's it's gruesome. You can just feel the, the burning of Grendel's insides, the tearing of his organs and even bone as the rod penetrates his flesh. Oh, it's super, super gross. And because a good sound effect will not only look really cool and be fun to say, but also give you a real feel for what's going on, I have to give the award to that one. What, Elizabeth, would you say wins the... Hell's Haberdashery Award. So my runner-up was Thor's hard hat and goggles as he forged his armor. Oh, in Pittsburgh? Yes, because safety is important, even when you're pounding out armor with broken bones. But also, you know, it kind of reinforces that Thor is vulnerable. He needs a helmet all the time anyway. Maybe this is just some weird helmet fetish he has. Maybe he's worried about hat hair. I mean, he's got that (laughs) mullet. It looks great sticking out of the helmet. Maybe it looks great if he's had a chance to brush it out. But if he's just been wearing the helmet and takes it off, maybe he looks dorky and he's self-conscious. Maybe his hair is super brittle because of Hella's curse. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) But my winner had to be Thor's Asgardian armor helmet. I mean, we described this before, but if this is an amplified version of his usual winged helmet, but it's gold, you know, with the gold eyepiece and the chainmail shielding the sides of his face. I mean, he's protected, but he's retained his essential branding. So good design work, Thor. Maybe he learned something from Iron Man, who makes all those different variants of his armor to fight the Hulk or to fight even Thor sometimes or whatever, but it's still recognizably Iron Man armor. Exactly. He's like, Anthony, tell me more about your design aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't you tell us your Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award? Okay, so for the worthiest object, it's funny you just mentioned Thor's helmet as the best hat, because my initial worthiest object choice was Thor's new armor. You know, with the blue and the gold and the shiny and all that. I mean, this is something that exists to showcase how much Thor has to change to survive, and so having it be so much gaudier and louder and more metallic than what he usually wears— That really works. And, you know, those shining colors also show us the rededication to the cause of heroism within Thor. And I like that it still has that Iron Man arm thing that Thor had before. That thing is really cool. And Thor's beard looks especially great under that helmet. But given that we've already given a lot of props to Thor's metal outfit, I think for the winner, I'm going to have to go with Loki's curse vase. The one that he enchants with the molten metal and throws into that pit and it makes all of Asgard fall asleep and that's no good and now the frost giants are going to attack. Not only does it have an important plot role, but it just looks so ridiculous and awesome. It is bright fuchsia. 
It is tough enough to contain liquid freaking metal slash a screaming river of souls with no problem, and it has a bunch of disgruntled-looking goblin faces ringing the bottom of it. Like, they don't want to be here. They weren't even supposed to come into work today, but their boss called them in and they wish they just hadn't picked up the phone. But no, now they have to be on a fuchsia vase containing the souls of the damned, which are made of molten metal, and they're going to be thrown into a chasm and shattered, and that's really not anyone's idea of a good time, to have your disembodied goblin face on a vase get shattered. Like, there's just so much going on with this vase, and I love it. Thank you, Selbusema. Or your soul vase. You know, it also reminded me of like a bong from the 70s, you know, like something that you would see like someone who's really into like Black Sabbath. Oh, man. It's got the sort of <laughs> demonic feel. But OK, so I, I mean, we live in Oregon where, where pot's legal. I'm, I'm not personally that into it. It just never did much for me. But if I was, this is exactly <laughs> the apparatus that I would construct and or acquire. Totally. And hopefully it wouldn't put you to sleep. Hopefully not that. Or, you know, have me be invaded by an army of angry frost giants. Yeah, that'd be bad. Nobody likes that. Mm -mm. Okay, well, that just leaves us with one final award, one final thing to discuss in this episode. Elizabeth, in this arc, what is our most metal moment? So this had to be Thor's final battle with Grendel, specifically him stabbing him with that steel bar. Like, that was such an epically horrific moment and then Thor kind of accepting his fate and going out with honor you know it, it hit every every beat of the best metal song oh man what I really enjoyed is how Grendel and the Dark Elves are just so impressed with Thor's resilience with Thor's honorable acceptance of his fate once he realizes that there's no avoiding it like when your enemies salute you right as they're about to kill you especially when they're already definitely bad guys who usually aren't so big on the honor thing like that is just awesome for those about to die, we salute you. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to do that for our karaoke night. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> so there you have it. Our penultimate arc of Walter Simonson's The Mighty Thor. Like we said, things are not looking good. Perhaps there will be a comeback for our heroes in our final episode coming up next. Because next time, our tale draws to a close as Thor suffers his greatest defeat and achieves his greatest victory. The Destroyer, the Midgard Serpent, and Asgard's Last Stand. This has been, and shall ever be, The, the Lightning, Lightning and, and the, the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! <laughs> <laughs>